What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 62 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast is recorded and pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This time we're speaking again to Margaret McCown. Margaret, or Moddy as she likes to be called, is Clinical Professor Emerita of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. Prior to retirement, Margaret was a senior scientist at the university's Learning, Research and Development Centre, and her work addresses practical and current issues that classroom teachers face at the chalk face. She has undertaken research in such areas as learning, instruction, teacher professional development, reading comprehension, and vocabulary instruction, which is the topic of today's podcast. She's also a member of the American Education Research Association and was inducted into their Reading Hall of Fame. So we're super lucky to have Moddy back on the podcast. Last time, Moddy spoke about questioning the author, a robust approach to teaching reading comprehension. It was an incredibly popular episode and before the end of last episode, I just knew that I wanted to get her on again to talk about her work in the important area of vocabulary instruction. And, dear listeners, I'm happy to say that this episode won't disappoint. Over the next two hours, you'll hear Modi share a wealth of ideas, including on topics such as what makes vocabulary instruction robust, what does it mean to know a word, the importance of vocabulary, how to choose words to teach, how many words to teach, she'll take us through a full vocabulary instructional sequence and much more. For anyone who's in the business of increasing students' vocabularies, this is one episode not to miss. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month we're highlighting Paul Spensley's new book, Successful Science Teaching, Improving Achievement and Learning Engagement by Using Classroom Assessment. This is a book written by one of the teachers, Paul Spensley, who has been involved in the research of Dylan William and Paul Black on formative assessment for several decades. In the book, Spensley outlines the lessons he's learned about how to practically apply key formative assessment ideas in the classroom, and he's refined these strategies and insights over a whole career of classroom teaching. I've personally been reading the first chapter over the last day or so, and even in the first few pages, I've already been blown away by Paul's insights and clarity, and feel like I understand much better how to write clearer and more actionable learning objectives, which is the topic of chapter one. Dylan William also loved the book, and in his foreword, he writes, Even though I've been researching and writing about formative assessment for over 25 years, I found much that was new, with great insights into practicalities of formative assessment in real classrooms. I believe that every science teacher would gain enormously from reading this book, and teachers of other subjects will also find much valuable insight into how to harness the power of assessment to improve, and not just measure, learning. A fantastic book you can get successful science teaching, which isn't just for science teachers, at johncatbookshop.com. And if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off Paul's new book, as well as any other book from John Cat Educational. That code, ERRR30, will also give you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. 
Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests of the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 62 of the ERRR podcast with Margaret McCown. Margaret McCown, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you very much, Ali. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Um, all right, we're just going to jump straight into it today, Moddy, and get into the juicy stuff. So we're speaking today about your book, Bringing Words to Life, Robust Vocabulary Instruction. So I, I was thinking that probably a good place to start is just with a simple question. What do you mean by robust vocabulary instruction? Yeah. Well, what we mean is that it's the kind of instruction that is effective enough, vigorous enough to help kids with reading comprehension so that, you know, the way they learn words, what they learn about words will transfer and help them with comprehension, which is kind of the ultimate goal of why we teach vocabulary. And the kind of instruction that does that has developed a consensus over decades that we know that we, to be most effective, uh, it seems that we need to give kids both contextual and definitional information. We need to give them multiple encounters with words, and we need to have that instruction interactive. So they're not just being fed information. They have to actually do something with the words, use the words, think about the words, play with the words. That's really important uh, um, to the kind of uh, mental representations they develop about words. Fantastic. So we'll get to all those bits. So you talked about contextual information, definitional info, multiple encounters and, and interactive. And we'll spend a bit of time on each of those four components within this podcast. Something else I thought was really great in the, your kind of definition of robust vocabulary instruction right at the start of the book is you said the following, being curious about the meaning of an unknown word that one encounters and intrigued by how it relates to other people is a hallmark of those who develop large vocabularies. And you kind of emphasize how robust vocabulary instruction is also about the way that students view words and view vocabulary and view learning. Did, did you want to touch on that at all? Sure. Yeah, I think that that is just vital. Uh, you know, one one part of it is the component you mentioned about, you know, being curious about words, having fun, you know, meeting a new word and going, oh, I wonder what that means. Or hearing somebody use a word in an unusual way and going, wow, that was cool. So that that's a big part of it. But there's also the part of helping kids develop an attitude about language, having them understand that language is this human-created phenomenon that is always developing and changing. The way we use words changes. You know, every time a word is used, it really means something just slightly different. And we want kids to to understand and, and appreciate that rather than thinking it's like some 
a high wall they have to climb. Like, oh my gosh, I've got to master all these words. No, it's like you have to develop, you know, kind of steep yourself in language and you get to manipulate it and, and play with it and use it as it benefits you. And that's the kind of, you know, attitude we want kids to have about language. That's right. What do you think are some of the major factors that determine whether or not students end up with either before school or after this or during their schooling experience, that kind of curious outlook towards words and vocabulary? Yeah, I think they need models of curiosity and, and having fun with language. So whether they get those models at home or in school, uh, you know, a teacher who really loves language and plays with, with language in books, you know, there's some books that use language in, you know, very creative and fun ways. And then, you know, from reading. So the kids who read, you know, we talk about the rich get richer. Well, the kids who are able to read and read a lot benefits so much because they learn, you know, so much more about language and the, the way other, uh, you know, authors use language and the way, the, the things you can do with words, that, that's a big way that a lot of, a lot of kids do it. And the problem there is that the, the kids who struggle the most with vocabulary are not the kids who are reading avidly and reading the kinds of books where they're going to be meeting that kind of lovely language and playful language. So that's why we think vocabulary instruction is so important. And, you know, classroom teachers' role is so important because there are a lot of kids who aren't going to be great readers who still can get a boost in language from, from instruction and discussion of uh, oral discussion of vocabulary. Yeah, great. Cool. And, and yeah, you come up with some great kind of approaches and methods of, of building though that interest, and we'll, um, we'll touch on some of them later. But for now, the next question I'm really curious about is, um, often we talk about students' as knowing words. It's like, oh, I taught the students 10 new words this week or this last few lessons, and they, they, they now know them, they can use it. What does it actually mean for a student to know a word? It's kind of a complex concept because, as I think we talked about in bringing words to life, you know, you can think about stages of a word. What, you know, the earliest stage m might be, oh, I know that's a word, but I don't know what it means. Or, yeah, I have kind of a feeling that that word means something about this person isn't nice. Or, you know, you can have a, a fuller understanding of it. This, this means a very bad act by a person. And then you can have beyond that, the kind of knowledge where you have a lot of connections to other words, you can you can kind of think about other con contexts that you've seen the word in, so you know how it works in a context. And it's that kind of knowledge that is really needed for reading comprehension most of the time. You need to be able to call on these connections. I mean, not consciously, but you need to, as you're reading through a text and you get to a you know a, a word of substance that that's meaningful to the context, you need to have connections immediately fire in your brain so that you can realize what that word does for the context, what that context means by having that word in it, and you can keep reading. So that's the kind of knowledge that's important to reading comprehension. And of course, if teachers teach definitions of words, test kids on definitions of words, they might do great, but it doesn't mean that they, that they know the word. Mm, 100%. So Modi, they, they kind of talked about the role of context and understanding the, the, the role that words play in different contexts. Do you have an example of, of how kind of a word and context um, interact so that um, to, to, to kind of demonstrate what a more shallow and what a deeper meaning, a deeper understanding of the meaning of that word would look, could look like? 
Okay, that that's kind of hard, but let me let me see if this fits what you want to know about. The idea of th- that word knowledge drives comprehension is an important concept in in the field, and it's been you know verified over and over again that word knowledge is such a big factor in comprehension. And a bi- a concept in that is what we call context integration. So, for example, if you meet a, a sentence that says Rhonda sent out wedding invitations to all the family, including her uncle Charles, who is a hermit. Now. You might read that sentence and not know what hermit means, or you might read that sentence and say, oh, hermit, that's somebody who lives alone. That's not enough. What you need is to be able to understand the characteristics of a hermit that apply to that context. So basically, you read that sentence and you say, he's not going to want to go to the wedding. You know, you need to combine it with the context and understand what aspects of that word apply to that context. And then that helps you figure out that sentence and you can continue reading and, you know, have that as, as an understood um, idea in the, in the text. Does that help? <laughs> yeah. So that was really good example. Yeah. Hermit, like it means someone who lives alone, but there's also that characteristic that matches that context. And without that deeper understanding of how it relates to that context, the person wouldn't get the idea that, you know, maybe she's, saving an invite by actually inviting this hermit because she knows he's not going to come so she might not have to might not have to pay for this the seating at the wedding which we all know can be quite expensive (laughs) yeah in fact if i can just add that we um created an assessment based on that kind of thinking for kids when we were working back in our fourth grade vocabulary uh program and so when we had taught words in our robust way and we had taught the same set of words to a different set of kids in just just with definitions and practice definitions. You know, they had games they played, but all but all they really learned was a definition. And then we gave them a task like this. So we would give them the sentence about Rhonda, and then we would say, what do you think Charles's answer was to the invitation? And what we found was that the kids that we had instructed with robust instruction would say, he's not going to want to go. Or, you know, he lives alone. He's he's not going to want to be at a party. Whereas the kids who learn the definitions were more likely to either pull something else out of the context, like, well, it sounds like an important event or all his family is going to be there. Something that doesn't really relate. Or they would just tell us a hermit is someone who lives alone. So they couldn't do that integration. Mm. So it, it, it's an assessment technique that we've, we've used and we think is pretty revealing because it really does show whether the student has learned that word in a rich enough a way that they can actually apply it to a context. Yeah, that's fantastic. And knowing how to assess for those different levels is something that's crucial and something you touch about a lot in the book, you know, ranging from multiple choice questions, phrasing multiple choice questions in different ways, and then more into to activities that you were, you were mentioning there that I hope we can touch on more a little bit later on in the podcast. Um, it might seem like an obvious question, obvious to many, but I think it is an important question to ask kind of at this early stage of the interview. Why is it important for students to have, you know, large comprehensive vocabularies again reading comprehension because that's the the main one if they don't have a large enough vocabulary they're really never going to be able to comprehend text at a high level now also vocabulary is good for writing if you're going to be you know writing as an adult try either trying to express yourself or trying to explain yourself to people it's going to be important there as well so 
you know, it's, it's your language. It's, it's, you know, I think of languages that that's how you present yourself to the world. You know, you talk to other people and they listen and respond to you. And so the better handle you have on a stock of words to use that you can use, you know, to be very specific, to be precise about what you want to say, to shade what you want to say so that if you want to be kind to someone or if you want to be snarky to someone, you know, you know the different ways you can put it. Or if you want to be clear to somebody to uh in expression the more words you know the better you're able to do that Mm, 100 i mean in in relation to that in terms of words as kind of the keys and the way into understanding comprehension of text i would imagine that it's very important the the word the actual words that students do know so i'm thinking as a teacher trying to decide determine or work out which words to choose for instruction you know what advice would you have for people in in starting down this journey like i know that some people have used word frequency lists because it makes sense right the most the 1,000 or the 5,000 most frequent words in a language are probably going to give you the most access well that's what i would have thought what kind of words do you usually recommend for teachers to focus on when they're choosing what to teach students? Yeah, yeah, that's a huge question, and and it seems um, not easy for teachers to wrap their heads around. Often, uh, basically, you want to teach some set of words that is going to be most useful to kids as they read. So it's it's most useful. So words that will that carry the meaning of the the substance, so they're rich content words in a text, words that will appear frequently enough so it is worth the energy to learn them. I mean, there's so many words in the English language, and this goes back to um, Nagy and Anderson's research in the 1980s, that there's so many words that there are many words that we will, even a, a good reader will meet once in their whole lifetime. You don't need to learn that word. So we want them to to be words that appear often enough that they're going to be useful, but not spend time teaching words that are either pretty easy and well-known, which are usually the most frequent, you know, the 5,000 most frequent. Kids, kids learn those on their own, oral language through conversations. And even the ones they don't know when they get to school, they're going to be learning those from other kids and, and just in school interactions. So you want to take kind of that next chunk of words, which we've called tier two words. And tier two we describe as the words that appear frequently in text, but actually rarely in conversation, and that appear across domains. So we want to teach words like adapt, consistent, confident, words that will appear in fiction and in nonfiction, but often enough that kids are going to keep running into them. So that so we've tried to talk about tier two, which is a concept we came up with, you know, not to be precise about every single word in the language. We we weren't trying to do that. And we, you know, I get asked all the time about, can you give me a list of tier two words? Well, you know, sort of, but not an exhaustive list because that's not the way we meant it to be. We meant it to be as kind of a, a mindset. Think about words in this way. And we can give you lots of examples that are tier two. And it's that kind of word you want to look for. Now, it happens that there are some lists that are very helpful. The academic word list that Cox had developed in, I know you had a citation from 1998 or something, and then 2000, I think, is the one that most people refer to, where she took quite an enormous corpus of texts from, I think they were all college texts, 
across domains, you know, science and social studies and history and, and literature, not fiction, but maybe literary criticism or so, and put them on a computer and developed a list of the ones that occurred most often across domains. And I think it was something like they had to occur, you know, 15 times in each of 10 domains or something like that. So it's ones that we know kids are going to be meeting a lot. And so that's a really useful list. But again, it's not like you should take that list and start at the beginning and have and teach kids every one of those words. That There's no reason to do that. There's a similar list that was developed even later, I think 2013, called the Academic Vocabulary List by Davies and Gardner. Now, what's different in theirs is they've used a more current and a slightly and a somewhat larger corpus of words that they have collected called the, it's COCA, the, Con- the Contemporary American English or something. And that comes from an even wider assortment of, of sources. And they have used, instead of building on word families, they have used just the, the lemma, which it would be the, head, the dictionary headword. So it overlaps to some extent, but it's just, you know, these technical things are not important for teachers or even researchers looking at it. It's just, that's another good source to consult. So academic word list, academic vocabulary list. But again, those to be used as resources, like, gee, I have some words over here that look like I might want to teach them. See if they're on the academic word list or see if they feel like the kinds of words that are on the academic word list is, you know, is is what I can say about choosing words. And the other thing is, so when we were doing our vocabulary research, early on, we just chose words like out of the air that we thought that thought would be this kind of word for kids. And then our later research, we actually used the academic word list. We taught only words from the academic word list. And the reason we did that is not because we thought those were the best words in the world, but it just made it very systematic, you know, and and easy to explain in, you know, for reviewers to look at our article. We chose, you know, they are on the academic word list. End of discussion. But then... We've also had some vocabulary program, vocabulary research and instruction programs that we've done for younger kids, and we used read-alouds. And so we chose words from the books that we thought seemed like tier two words. I mean, we didn't necessarily check them on the academic word list. We just, we just using our own judgment, said that, that those seem like good words. Yeah. You kind of mentioned two approaches there. Um, for the first one, from teaching off the lists, I mean, some of these, I know the Coxhead one's got something like five or 600 words on it. I don't know what the day, how many of the Davies and Gardner academic word list has on it, but um, five or 600 words, that would be a good couple of years of school, I would imagine, of, of instruction. Is there, in terms of being systematic, I imagine it would also be helpful for schools to use a list because then they can say, they can actually play over a number of years and say in year seven, students are going to learn this or in year five or whatever it might be. Then in the subsequent year, they're going to learn these words and everyone knows and it's kind of kind of clear. And then if teachers get students to use words or include stories, include specific words later on, they can refer the word list and say, have they looked at this? Is, is there a specific order if we are sequencing something across years? Because you mentioned before, oh, we wouldn't just start from A and work through. But is, is there a specific order you do it? How would you kind of approach se- sequencing of those words? Well, the academic word list is presented in a number of ways. And one of the ways I believe is of those words, the, the most frequent to the, to the least frequent. So probably start with the most frequent. But the, the thing about teaching off a list, I mean, when we used a list for our research, you know, we took the words and we had planned to develop an entire vocabulary program. So 
it really begs the question of if if schools are going to use a list, then what are they going to do with those words? And that's why, in a way, it's easier to start with the texts that kids are already reading in class, because then you've got a context already, and you can get kids to talk about that context, and then you can just kind of roll from there to think about other contexts. And you know, even bring in other words that might seem like they relate to that story or could be used to describe the characters in that story. So it's it's almost like, I think, now maybe not, but it seemed to me that a more doable approach would be to take whatever you're going to be reading in, in class, look for some words in the text that seem like tier two words, and then take a look at the academic vocabulary list, academic word list, and see if there's some other words that you might want to import because, again, they, they seem to go with those contexts or, just, or be the same sort of word that can be used in the same situation. And that seems like to give, you a, to give teachers a, something a little richer to go on than just a whole bunch of words because my fear is then you're going to end up with definitions and then telling kids to use the word in a sentence. And it's just easier to get stuck there than if you've got text already and you're, you can kind of roll with that. Mm. But, I, you know, I don't know. That's just a hunch. Yeah, sure. I, I guess one of the other ways would be to go with um, some sort of program that has all of this rich instruction around it and that's based on such a list. I didn't see any such programs mentioned in, in your book, but do you know of any actual pro like off-the-shelf stuff that a school can buy and it sequences a number of years of instruction of vocabulary? Uh, not that are really good. When, when we developed our <laughs> so when we developed our RAVE program, which is the uh, program we developed for sixth and seventh graders, middle school kids, you know, 12 and 13-year-olds, we wanted the control classrooms to also be studying vocabulary. So we looked at a number of programs that are offered, and we thought that they were pretty awful. They basically dealt with, you know, here's a definition, uh, some synonyms. Sometimes they deal with Latin roots, which is fine. You know, write a sentence. And there was, there was just, first of all, there's very little discussion. You know, it's all, it's, it's all kind of tends to be notebooks and workbooks. So I am not aware of any program that I would necessarily recommend. There may be some out there because that was a while ago and I, you know, I really haven't kept up with that. But I would say if you are going to use a program, don't just use the program. Get kids to interact around words. Get them to talk about, if they write sentences, get them to talk about the sentences they've written compare sentences, you know, whether they want to vote on a favorite sentence, whatever. But they really need to interact around words, not just, you know, give, in, give information and, and receive information about words. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that was kind of one approach you were talking about, starting from word lists or, or potentially drawing on them to supplement. The other thing you mentioned and really emphasized there was using text that teachers and students are already using and kind of highlighting probably the tier two words from there. If we think about that, you mentioned earlier about tier two words are those that appear frequently in text, but not so much in spoken. They've got application across different domains. Is there anything else about identifying, you know, if I were to read a passage, which I'm about to in a second as a little activity, if I were to read a passage and, and try to identify the tier two words in such a passage, what do I need to be looking for? I think you've said the main characteristics. I mean, it's it's words that you feel like are 
kind of sophisticated words, words that are general so that it's not a new concept that's being introduced, but there are familiar terms that you can use to describe the word. And it might be just a little more refined or a little nuanced meaning, but it it is somewhat similar in meaning to some pretty high frequency words. Mm. Okay, (laughs) cool. Well, I'm going to read a short, you know, six, seven line passage here from your book and I'll, I'll read it from start to finish. And then um, I'll try to pick out from it the tier two words, and you can tell me how I've done, Moddy. That'd be great. So here goes, here goes the passage. The servants would never comment on this strange occurrence, finding the kitchen clean, even though none of them were seen doing it the cleaning. Each servant hoping the other had tended to the chores. Never would they mention the loud noises they'd hear emerging from the kitchen in the middle of the night nor would they admit to pulling the covers under their chins as they listened to the sound of haunting laughter that drifted down the halls to their bedrooms each night. In reality, they knew there was a more sinister reason behind their good fortune. Good passage as well. Do you remember what text that's from? Yeah, it's kind of cool, isn't it? I don't even remember what, where we got that from, but yeah, that's, that is kind of, you want to read more of that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do, I do. It's really drawing me in. All right, so... The servants would never comment, maybe comment. Um, I'll, I'll go through and I'll say them and then maybe you give me some feedback. So the servants would never comment on this strange occurrence. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident about occurrence. I reckon that's a tier two word. Comment might be, I'm not sure. Finding the kitchen clean, even though none of them are seen doing the cleaning, each servant hoping they had tended to the chores. Tended seems like a, a good one. Also, that's a tricky one because things can tend to be hot mm-hmm. or cold or good or bad, but also tending to the chores has a different meaning there. Never would they mention the loud noises that he hear emerging from the kitchen. I'd probably go with emerging in the middle of the night, nor would they admit, maybe admit. It's it's a bit of a simpler, it would be at the simpler end of tier two, I'd say, but maybe tier two, to pulling the covers under their chins as they listen to the sound of the haunting laughter. Haunting probably, Yep. They drifted down the halls to their bedroom each night. In reality, they knew there was a more sinister, that's a good word, let's call that a tier two word, reason behind their good fortune. So I've gone for comment, occurrence, tended, emerging, admit, haunting, and sinister. Have I missed anything or included anything I shouldn't have? You didn't say reality. Oh, where's that one? We would include, in reality, they knew there was more of a a more sinister reason for their good fortune. Okay. Yeah. So interestingly, when I went back to this, though the ones you identified, and if we had reality, are exactly what we identified. But when I went back to the passage, I went, hmm, I wonder if drifted, mm. if I should consider that a tier two. So I, I highlighted that in a different color because I thought, oh, we missed that one. <laughs> but yeah, those are you have it. You have it exactly right. And. Now, the other thing about tier two words, and you kind of mentioned it here as you went, you said admit that might be an easier one. That's still a tier two word because it's the role of the word in the language. I mean, they admit to pulling the covers. It's it's something, you know, maybe you're, you'd be more likely to hear admit in conversation than you would, you know, occurrence. But it's still a tier two because it's not the sort of simplest way they wouldn't say that they had been. I mean, you'd have to use a lot more words to get that concept across, but it's a it's a more efficient way to say that you're owning up to something or that you're saying that you, you're not wanting to say that, uh, you're actually re- saying that you did something when maybe you didn't want to say that. <laughs> so yes, it's a tier two word. And the point I was really trying to make is that not all tier two words are at the same level of difficulty. 
there's going to be a range. It's just, again, the kind of word, the role it plays in, in the language. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So, and two other ideas there. I guess admit also has that other meaning. You could be admitted to the theater or to the the mental institution or the whatever it might be. So there's that different um, word of admit too. But also there's this idea that tier two words are a more precise and nuanced way of saying things that students could probably say in another way. So I get that comment as well. The servants would never comment on this strange occurrence. The, the servants would never tell their friends about this strange occurrence or tell anyone about. So that's a simpler way and the comment is a more specific way. So that's that's another good distinction for tier two words as well. Great. Thanks for that. Also, I'll just mention for I'll um I'll include notes in the show notes uh, for listeners links to the Coxhead Academic Word List the and also the Davies and Gardner one and also include just that passage that we just talked about there as a little reference for people. Let's jump maybe now into a bit of an instructional sequence, if possible, and and to to really see what because we talked about some big ideas and choosing words and and the importance of interaction and and those other ideas you mentioned at the start of what robust is contextual and definitional information multiple encounters and it being interactive it'd be great to kind of let's talk through a bit of an instructional sequence now so that listeners can really hear what it sounds like to do ro- robust vocabulary instruction from start to finish maybe over a period of say 5 days so if we're on day 1 and we walk into a classroom where a teacher's starting a new sequence of of word instruction, what might we see? You'd see, so let's take the, the, uh, they're doing it from a text. You would see them reading a text and possibly during the text, the teacher might stop and explain a word, a word or two. I would not promote teaching words before the reading. And I can talk more about that later if you, if you want me to. And then when the story's finished, so let's say there are six words that the teacher's identified she wants to teach. When the reading and and maybe in the in the course of the reading, she explains three of those because the other three might not be that important for understanding the story. So she would leave those for later. So that then at the end of that, she would introduce each of those six words. For example, saying, well, in the story, it said the servants would never comment on something. That means they would never have anything to say about what it was that happened. So, so contextualize it, you know, explain what it means in terms of the context, but give, in essence, a definition for it. And then take it somewhere else. Like say, yeah, what's something that that you have had a comment on in the classroom in the last few days? So get the kids to, to kind of put it in their world and use it in a different context and do that for each of the six words. That might be all they do for that first day. And then the next day, there might be a quick review of uh, asking kids, like the teacher might say, does comment mean, you know, something that happened? The kids would say no. Wait, you know, and also it would be good to have a visual. She should definitely have a visual in the classroom of the list of words. Or to say, I'm going to say a meeting and, and see if you can tell me which word it was. A thing that happened and kids say, ooh, occurrence. Okay, talking about something. Ooh, comment. And so a quick review of the definitions and then go on to something else. Like say, okay, talk about something that you admitted to your parents that you did 
or, you know, create little scenarios and have kids respond to that. Take several of them, you know, maybe expand on them. So there's there's just a conversation going on about words and, and how they're used. Another activity might be, and, you know, maybe there's time for a couple of activities. So something like that. And then maybe there's something like we used to do sentence stems. So we'd give kids half a sentence, kind of uh, like maybe say, in thinking about the reality of the situation, and then kids had to fill in something, you know, I felt really scared or I, and so give kids, say you've got your six words, six stems to do, give them a little time to do it. And then say, okay, let's talk about them. You know, Ollie, what did you have for reality? Read me your sentence and say, oh, well, you know, uh, what was Ollie thinking about when he wrote that sentence about reality? So again, you get the conversation going and, and kids sharing what they have. It's fun. It's fun to hear what other kids have said. Some of the sentences are going to be funny. So you do that. Then you put it away, and the third day you come back and maybe you uh, give them another challenge of, so who can use the word comment and mention in the same sentence? And, you know, so making it a little more, or what's something that you might never mention, even though you wanted to comment on it? So you might, you know, try to get a couple words used at the same time, or what, what is it that's both sinister and haunting? You know, so give kids just a different way to think about the the words. Cool. So now, right now, you're kind of going through. So in your book, in, especially in the appendix, you had what was it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight different kind of strategies. Uh, I'll just read out the list because you've you've already kind of um, used mentioned some of them. So one is example, example, non-example, word associations, generating situations contexts, context and examples, writing, uh, returning to the story context and puzzles. So you've talked, to, you, you were just talking a little bit then about the, the kind of activity of word associations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Yeah, that we think is a really important one because, well, first of all, we like the idea of word associations rather than synonyms, because I think I think the whole concept of synonym is is bogus because it gives it gives kids idea and even teachers the idea that there's going to be some other word that means the same thing as you know comment or admit or occurrence and so when you think about it that that's crazy because that means half the words in the language we don't need because we already have a word that means that. So there there aren't exact synonyms for most of the words we have. And I think what that encourages, if you, if you say to kids, give me a synonym for that word, they're going to think that there is one. And if they come up with something that's close, that's, they're likely to come, up more, to come up with something that's more like an association. They're going to then fall into the trap of using that second word in place of the first one, think it can replace it in any context, and then it, it's just bad. So we like the, the idea of association. So what does the word fortune make you think of? Or what's another word that if you have a fortune, what's another way to describe what that's like? You know, if I have a fortune, oh, I'm really wealthy. So you start, you know, building connections to that word from other words that kids already know. Mm. Okay. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of what about returning to the story context, how might that be done if that's an activity a few few days afterwards? 
Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good and, and rich one because you kind of mix up how the words are used in, in the story. Instead of going back to, okay, remember when they said they'd never comment? What was that about? You say, they said they'd never comment about that. And how does that relate to them worrying about something sinister? So then they have to combine, oh, well, they never wanted to talk about it because it kind of scared them. Mm. You get a, a you know a richer look at that, or sometimes you you would say emerging. Like let's take to merging. So we uh, in the story it said these loud noises emerged. What else do you think in thinking about what these servants were doing? What what's something else you can say that emerged? How else could you use merge to describe something in the story? So we want to kind of move those pieces around. We want to move those words around. And then the the really good thing to do is there may be some words that you studied last week that you could then bring in and say, does that word apply to this story? And we actually got that idea from kids. We were working with kindergarten and first grade. And the first graders actually began to say, oh, I think, you know, this story seems just as sinister as, a, you know, this guy in this story seems sinister, like, like we read about in the last story. We're like, wow. <laughs> so that's a really good way to keep words going, because even if you take a, a set of words and you work with them all week, you, you don't want to drop them. You want to keep them. You want to mm. give them opportunities to keep coming up in the classroom and to keep kids in, in mind that they've learned not just this, these six words this week, but there were six last week and the week before and the week before that are still part of their repertoire that they, that they should be you know, using and thinking about. That's great. Maybe we'll jump back very quickly to day one because you, you kind of talked about giving definitions briefly and, and during reading, but it's it's really a point that you stressed a fair bit in the book. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it a little bit more. What are kind of the dangers with dictionary definitions and what should teachers be using instead? The danger with dictionary definitions is that it's a it's just a funny kind of language. It's kind of this chopped up pieces of language. So looking up a word in the dictionary is often not very clear because the way it's presented, and often the words that are used, especially for you know tier two words, the words that are used to describe that might even be harder than the word itself that you're trying to teach. I had an example here. Oh, yeah. So here's a definition from a def, uh, dictionary about for the word fickle, erratic changeableness or instability. You understand that word now? I mean, <laughs> so that's a terrible, that's a terrible way to describe that word. You know, if I were a kid, I'd want to cry. If, if the teacher said, you know, I want you to learn the word fickle, I, that doesn't mean anything. So that's why. Now there are some some dictionaries that are that are much better than that. They're typically the learners dictionaries. So there's a a Collins learners dictionary, there's a Longman learners dictionary, and those dictionaries are intended for people who are learning English as a an additional language and they really explain the word it, they uh, it, it tends to be more of a full sentence like somebody who is fickle might change their mind a lot without any reason. So it really is an explanation and it uses the word and, and so it demonstrates how the word is used in the language. Mm, that's great. And I'll, I'll include the notes in the show notes, Collins Learner's Dictionary and Longman's Learner's Dictionary for, for listeners as well. Oh yeah. And also a, a point that I really found interesting in your book was the reason why um, a lot of these definitions are so 
tricky to understand in dictionaries because historically um, we didn't have online dictionaries. We just had, um, you know, books, physical books. And, you know, the space, the limited space of a physical book when you're trying to define thousands and thousands of words is the main constraint that the dictionary writers were working with, right? So they had to write as concisely as they possibly could (laughs) to define this word, which actually acts against the goal of helping people understand it, which is this fantastic, really interesting kind of paradox or challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, yeah, how we ended up with that. Yeah. Um, So one more um, resource. There's a site called onelook.com, which gives you the opportunity to look up a word in like 25 dictionaries. So you put in a word and it gives you a list of the dictionaries that have a definition for that word. And then if you go to, it includes the at least one of the learner's dictionaries and some other dictionaries so that you go, you go to several of those and you can kind of put together a good, a good meaning for it. But another way that I think is really good to use a dictionary is beginning with a, a context for a word. So, you know, it's been read in a story or the teacher presents a context and then give the kids the, cho- the, the task of looking that word up in the dictionary together, either in pairs or groups, and talking about, since they have a context for it, talking about how they would describe that word. And, you know, if I were doing this as, as a teacher, I'd circulate and see, because if they have some of these uh, definitions like this one for fickle, they're, they're still going to be lost. But given a context and a definition and being able to talk it over, I think would be a really good exercise for kids. They would be able to put that definition in their own terms, which again is a, is a really good learning exercise because they're, you know, manipulating that word, thinking of, of how they would describe it, um, how it fits the context. So that, that is a really good way to use dictionaries. Mm, that's great. I'll, one look sounds fantastic. I'll, um, I'll be jumping onto that myself when I'm trying to learn words myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's real. Uh, I'm there all the time. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, another thing um, you mentioned in the book about definitions is, and, and I, I was a bit surprised by this, but providing different definitions on different days for the same word. Can you tell us why that might be useful or a good thing to do? I would have thought it was just confuses students. Oh, no, because it's, you know, when we say different, we don't mean completely different. So it's not, you know, the example you gave in that little passage of the word tend, uh, they tended to do something and they tend to chores. It wouldn't be definitions for distinct meanings like that. It would just be ways to kind of paraphrase or shorten the definition. The important point for doing that is so that you that kids don't memorize the definition. We don't want them to think as a memory task and they memorize it. We want them to to put to have to put thought into how they describe what a word means. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I initially would have thought that memorizing a definition is useful because it's like an anchor for the students, but I guess in terms of your trying to promote the idea that words are flexible, they take on slightly different meanings in different contexts. I, I guess I'm starting to see how that could be, different definitions could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So let me see if I can give you an example. So uh, here's uh, from our RAVE program, um, the word assume. If you assume something, you form an opinion without really knowing the facts. So we show that to kids the first day but then in, in practicing it later, we might say, uh, if you assume something, you might think it's true without really knowing. 
So it's the same concept. We haven't changed that concept at all, but we've just used different, slightly different words to describe it. Mm. So that, that's what we mean. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you ever had any students push back and say, no, but you said it means this yesterday and now you're saying it means this? <laughs> um, not that I know of. I, and no teachers ever reported that, so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> okay, yeah. there you go. I can just imagine that happening in the classroom. Yeah, we'll I'm say. sure. Um, <laughs> another question in terms of setting things up on that, that day one, how many words should we be teaching students and, and expecting them to do activities with? That's a tough question because, you know, so many of these questions are specify various parts of, of instruction. You know, researchers just haven't been able to do that many iterations of, of research to, to test all those variables. So we kind of take guesses. I, I think we've used usually between six and 10 words for a week in the studies we've done. And that seems reasonable. I mean, six seems like a, you know, a good enough number that it's a good addition to kids' repertoires and that, you know, it's, it doesn't tax their memory too much. Ten is probably, you know, a little harder, but you can probably do accomplish that with kids, especially beyond the primary grades. So, you know, we don't really know. I guess, in, you know, to say, to go to the extremes, it doesn't make sense to just teach them a couple of words a week because there's so many words that they should be learning. And you can't, you probably can't teach more than, say, 12 in a week and really expect them to come out of that with with a rich understanding. So that, you know, again, guesses, hunches, things we've seen in, in the research. Mm, that makes sense. And I guess another point is, and Graham Nuttall's research has really highlighted this as well, if we had to teach six or 10 new words, they're not going to be new words for every student in the class. Some students will already have a bit of background knowledge likely about what at least some of the words mean. So that's that's another thing for us to keep in mind as well, I guess. Yeah. But another thing, on the, like the other end of that is also that I'd want to take the burden off of teachers for them feeling like they have to have all kids to know those words perfectly by the end of the week. Because even if kids are still having trouble with some of those words, that's fine. The, the thing is, if you've given them a solid grounding, lots of opportunities, they're going to keep learning that word. It's not like that word is going to be stuck in that state, in that status for the rest of the kid's life. They're going to be, they're going to keep meeting that word in text. They're going to keep building their understanding of it. So it's, it's okay if not every kid knows every word when, when the week is over. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic that's a fantastic point. And just while you were saying that, I actually had to think back to our dis discussion a couple of minutes ago about different definitions of the word and how that might actually be really beneficial when we're questioning students or getting them to recall or define words themselves as a retrieval activity or something like that. Because I guess one of the dangers presenting the same definition each time is students memorize that definition and spit that definition out without really testing their understanding about it. Whereas if we model using different combinations of words to describe another word over and over again, students think, oh, when the teacher asks me to define a word, they're not asking me to just replicate what they've put on the board three days ago. They're actually wanting me to put it in my own words, um, which is so much more powerful. So that's a that's a um, another reason why maybe that approach could be beneficial. Yeah, exactly. And also you can think of the situation where 
kids might have learned a word uh, and they have a definition that they've memorized, and then they might meet that word on another test, maybe in another class or, you know, on a, a standardized test, the definition might be different that's on the test. Mm-hmm. And if the kids just memorized the definition that they were given in class, they might not even recognize the word. So, you know, they, we really want to build knowledge, mm-hmm. not, as you say, memory. Yeah, that's great. Um one other thing you alluded to earlier that I wanted to follow up on, and you kind of you kind of hinted that you wanted me to follow up on it, Moddy, was that um, <laughs> you don't advocate teaching words before students encounter them in context. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, because it, it's sort of been traditional in reading instruction to teach words before kids read a story. So what happens is, you know, say there are three or often five or six words that are taught and kids are just given a short introduction to them, obviously, because the, the main feature is reading the text. So kids don't know, don't really know those words when they finish with that activity. So when they meet them in, in the story, they're not likely to remember which word was which. That's number one. Two is that Often you'll see, you might see fairly elaborate instruction of a word before a story, which is unnecessary at that point because, you know, vocabulary and comprehension are tightly linked, but sometimes you're really trying to accomplish one more than the other. So let's reserve time for comprehension of the story so we don't want kids to be thinking about other contexts or other ways a word could be used. We want them just to be thinking about the story so if kids are reading the, the story together, like in a read aloud or a group read, the teacher has several choices. If the word really seems important for comprehension right there, she can just quickly describe it, describe the meaning of it and go on. And then all the information that the kids have gotten is what they need for that text because their task right then is understanding the story. And so match the information you're giving them with what you want them to be focusing on. So then after the story, we can go back and introduce words that you described, other words that seemed that were in the story but maybe weren't absolutely needed to comprehend a sentence, and then you start the rich vocabulary instructional work. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and, and, and a good point on there is like something I was thinking about while you're talking there. If and I've been because I've been learning German recently, and I've found that when I learn a story, when I focus on the story and then look at the vocab later, the story can act as a really good anchor for the meaning of the words. And so, you know, we can think about which one comes first as acting as the anchor for understanding the next one. And I think a story and the way that our human brains are kind of conditioned to take on a narrative and remember it is a much or can be a much stronger anchor than if we were to try to start with a list of words and expect them to act as an anchor for the story. It could even compromise the student's understanding of the story because they're focusing on, oh, which word was that again? Maybe it's this one, maybe it's that one. That makes a lot of sense. Another example of that for that's probably quite easy to understand for adults is if you're trying to read a report and the front of the front two pages of the report, often international organizations do this. The front two pages of the report are just a list of acronyms. And then within the report itself, they they just they just use the acronyms. And it's like as if I'm gonna read two pages of acronyms, remember them all, and then be able to use the uh, be able to remember them in the document when I'm reading it. It just makes no sense. So it's like well, one, just try not to use acronyms because they're stu- really annoying. Yeah, well, um, that. And two, yeah. if you do use them, like at least use the full phrase a few times before you introduce <laughs> the acronym. Otherwise, I'm yeah. not going to remember it. Um, one of my pet peeves. Yeah. That's a perfect analogy, by the way. Yeah. Great. Um, 
Another, uh, I'm wondering if there's an exception to this. Often we might have one or two English language learners in the classroom and there are words that we know are going to be foreign for them, but for the rest of the students, um, that's not going to be the case. And there might be quite a few extra words and more than you'd want to kind of stop the story every sentence or a couple of sentences. Would it make sense to give them a handout or something with some additional annotations, definitions, things like that, so that they can kind of engage with the actual story in real time at the same time as the other students or or would that still be overwhelming do you think yeah that's probably a good approach again it you know something like that both eases the burden and makes it and adds to the burden because kids have this list sure it's got information on it that they can use in the story, but then they, you know they have to keep going to that list. So that's that's probably good. I'm I'm not an uh, an EL teacher, and I'm sure there are good EL teachers who have good ways to do that. That doesn't disrupt the process. But yeah, that's and I'm sure you know I I don't mean for the not teaching before the story to be a hard and fast rule because I'm sure there are examples when you would want to do that. For example, if you're having kids read the story on their own independently, and there's some words in the story that you're just not going to understand the story at all, unless you know those words, then yeah, you've got to introduce them. But the point is, you know, make it brief and make it related to how the words are used in the story. If even, even bring up the sentence from the story, say you're going to read about, you know, these people who had a sinister experience. Sinister means it was really scary and seemed like some, somebody evil was behind it. So, uh, you know, limit it to, to appropriate for the comprehension task. Mm, that's fantastic. All right, so we're getting we're getting through this example now. We've started. We've encountered the words in context. We've provided a brief kind of description of the word, and I, and I will mention to listeners in my first podcast with Modi, we which was about questioning the author. We also you, you modelled in in a number of ways, kind of defining words within sentences during the course of instruction as well. So listeners might like to go back to that that episode as well. Um, but yeah, so we've introduced words in context. We've used good student-friendly definitions as like those from Collins Learner's Dictionary, Longman's Learner's Dictionary, or just ones that the teachers made up themselves. And we've probably had a bit, maybe a bit of an exercise on that first day. And we've, crucially, we've, and this is a point you just made then, we've restricted the definitions to ones that are applicable to the context of that story. We haven't, just because they use the word tended, we don't start to talk, go on off on a massive tangent about all the different meanings of tended and things like that. And then on days, you know, two, three, four, also six to ten words. Generally, rule of thumb might be it might be a good number for a week or so. Days two, three, four, we've used different activities, and I can't emphasize enough how how great this the appendix of your book is, where you've got that list of strategies. All, and I think that's a fantastic quick reference point for for teachers to go to. Activities like example, non-example, word associations, generating situations, um, returning to the story context, and even some puzzles um, that you mentioned. And then day five, you talk about assessment. What what do you mean by assessment? What would you expect this to look like in, in a standard classroom? Well, it depends on what the teacher's purpose is. I mean, if the teacher just needs a check mark or a number for her grade book, then it's fine to give something simple like a multiple choice definitional test. Because in this way I've been describing about interactive, uh, kids being interactive and discussing vocabulary, the teacher really knows a lot more about 
the kid's learning than might be captured in a test because she's seen it. She's seen it. She's modeled to try to help them. So something like just definitions would be fine. If the teacher really wants to go deeper, then there are a number of other assessment possibilities that that could work. Um, one of them, and most of these mirror the activities we do with kids. So in a way, almost any activity you do with kids as part of a learning situation can also be used as an assessment. Because when you're doing it as the, the learning activity, usually you're doing it in a group, you're discussing it. But if you use it as an assessment, then you just give it to individual kids and they respond. So for example, the sentence stems. You might have a sentence stem and have kids, you know, fill in the rest of the sentence and you could grade it on, you know, zero, one or two. Zero if it is wrong. One if it's just kind of a blah sentence that that and two if it's really a good uh, interesting use of the of the word or or you know making good associations to the word. So that's one. The thing I talked about earlier, the context integration we're giving kids a context like the the Rhonda one and and the hermit or another one let's see another one we had was Mrs. Smith uh, was just when when Mrs. Smith looked at her garden she was distraught so you say what what do you think her garden looked like and so make kids think well mm, okay distraught or well, maybe all the plants had died so that that is another kind of assessment um, you can do Oh, let's see. Um, and again, almost any activity. You could do an example, non-example. Set that up as an assessment. You could have it as simple, you know, which is the example, which is the non-example, or you could have, you could say why and have, you know, for slightly older kids, have them describe why one was an example and one was not. Or say, you know, give an example of something emerging. Give an example of something sinister. Those are all sorts of ways that you can get at what kids have, have learned. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Margaret McCown is stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the Eat Our podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode, as well as access to an interactive transcript. This month's summary will include big ideas such as the fact that vocabulary instruction must include contextual and definitional info, multiple encounters, and interactivity. It also covers why we need to be careful when teaching words before the text, advice on how to choose words for vocabulary instruction, and a detailed breakdown of the instructional sequence that Modi has just taken us through, including a bit more detail about how to carry out some of the activities that were mentioned. This month is also the final month that all $5 patrons who sign up before March 1st will get a free copy of my forthcoming book, Tools for Teachers, How to Teach, Lead, and Learn Like the World's Best Educators. This book summarizes the most profound insights and the most practical takeaways from the first five years and 60 episodes of the ERRR podcast with chapters on everything from explicit instruction to leadership. I've condensed the more than three and a half million words spoken in the podcast over its first five years into a concise and digestible book for your easy reference. That's a free ebook for all $5 patrons, excluding the price of postage, and a 50% discount for all other patrons. So even if you sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month, you'll get 50% off my new book, 
Tools for Teachers. I'm actually personally buying these copies off the publisher, John Cat, as a gift for all patrons to say thank you for your support so far as your ongoing patronage really does help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on. But that's not all. An exciting addition to the offer this month is that I'm going to recognize all patrons of the ERRR podcast for their incredible support by printing the name of each and every patron who would like to be acknowledged within the pages of Tools for Teachers. So if you'd like this triple offer of a summary of this podcast with Margaret McCount, a free or 50% off copy of my forthcoming book, Tools for Teachers, and to have yourself or even your school or organization acknowledged within the pages of Tools for Teachers, then sign up to support the show at patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the podcast and for this great offer. But make sure you do so before March 1st for all three benefits. Thanks to all of those who already support the podcast and a big thank you to all of you who already support the podcast to be sustainable for the long run. And now let's jump straight back into episode 62 of the ERRR podcast with Margaret McCown. That's great. That's a great little little overview of some of the things teachers can do and, and you do have a whole chapter in your book on that that, that lays it out in detail. So that's great. So yeah, thanks thanks for stepping us through that, Moddy. The, a real kind of go-to-woe five days of instructional uh, of what it could look like um, teaching a set of words. So, Marty, w- what are some of the common mistakes that teachers make when either implementing your approach to vocabulary instruction or just teaching vocabulary more broadly? Ooh, that's such a big question. I think, again, I think they often get caught up in this, um, you know, it's the definition that, that they want the kids to, to kind of get. And that, and then another, I don't know if I'd call it a mistake, but something that's difficult because, you know, we want these interactions. We want kids to be talking about how they use the words. Um, if kids give a, an answer that's not quite on track, I think uh, teachers ha- can have a hard time dealing with it because y- you don't want to say to a, a kid, no, that's wrong. So sometimes teachers do that. And sometimes they end up going, mm-hmm, and they're just moving on to another kid. So they leave that really incorrect response kind of hanging out there so it seems right. So we've worked with teachers a lot to try to, you know, how do you respond to kids? How do you respond if they say, let's see. So so we had a context in one of the things we taught. We're teaching the word potential. And one of the contexts we used was about an open house and potential house buyers. So kids read that and then later on, teacher might say something about, um, you know, what's a potential or something about, use the word potential. And they'd say, well, it's when, so somebody wants to buy a house and blah, blah, blah. And so clearly they're adopting parts of that context and thinking that's what potential means. So instead of saying, oh yeah, that could happen and moving on, the teacher should say something like, oh, okay. So you're thinking back to that context that we had about potential house buyers, but you can, there can be potential, all sorts of things. You know, you could be a potential student, you could be a potential athlete and even go back to go back to the definition. You've got to help kids straighten those things out because those are natural things that happen in the course of trying to understand a word. And it's important to to develop ways to help kids through that. And I think teachers aren't used to doing that because most vocabulary programs don't sort of open up the processing so that you see what kids are trying to to do. And that's that's an important thing to, to learn. 
Yeah. Okay. That's that's a really good point. How to react productively and bring students back when either they get something completely wrong or or they get something partially partially correct in the classroom. Great. And yeah, I had another episode of the Each Up podcast with with Aaron Peters on why students ask don't ask for help when they need it, and and that within that we we covered a bunch of kind of um, ways that teachers respond, how that reflects on students, the kind of expectations that that creates for students about how they're going to be responded to as well. And so that might be something that listeners would like to go back to and check out as well. Something, one of the big kind of learnings for me throughout my teaching career has been the importance of revisiting ideas if we really want students to remember them and for them to stick. And this this is the case for myself as well, trying to learn, you know, words in, in foreign languages or just concepts more broadly. I guess one of the benefits of vocabulary instruction is students, if they, especially if they start reading or, or more widely or things like that, they're likely to encounter lots of these T2 words naturally anyway. And so they get kind of that natural reinforcement. For, but particularly for students who might be a little bit reluctant to do that kind of independent reading, exploring text otherwise, and, and just kind of spending their free time watching sports or on social media or or all that other kind of stuff. Do you have any advice, structures, procedures, processes for ensuring that they kind of see and encounter and interact with these words enough and over the right kind of intervals for them to actually stick? Yeah, absolutely. And we kind of, you know, came upon some of those as we were doing our our programs. Uh, several times we had programs that we set up so that w- there would be like four weeks of instruction on sets of words. And then that fifth week, we would just take the words that had been already been learned and do two or three days, just the same kinds of activities, but reviewing all those words together. So it, you can build that into your instructional cycle, just bring those words back. I think the thing I mentioned before about having the list of words in the classroom, that you should all, always have, I think, the, at least two or three of the last week's lists still up there. And then there should also be a place in the classroom. Sometimes it can be like a, something that looks like a recipe box. And you have a, an index card for each word that's been learned in the classroom that's been, you know, the subject of vocabulary instruction. And you have the word, you have whatever context, you know, it was first introduced in, and then the definition. And that box should stay in the classroom all year long. And sometimes you should bring it into instruction. One way is to say, okay, today we're going to have a, you know, vocabulary writing activity. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this box, Joey, and you pick out four cards. And everybody's going to have to write, you know, write a story that has those words in. You know, that's one way to do it. When kids are in the upper grades, they can be keeping their own vocabulary notebook. And then, you know, at some, at some time in the class, you can just say, okay, go back to, you know, just everybody open up their vocabulary notebooks to, you know, any page. Read me the word you have. And then just talk about that word a little bit. So you always keep bringing these words back in systematic ways or just like little opportunities uh, that come up. Now, the other way is these activities that we talked about, like in the media or Word Wizard, where we ask kids to find their words outside of class. And so that can include any word that they've studied all year. It doesn't have to be just this week's word. If they find it outside of class or they use it, they can tell you about it and they get, you know, whatever, a check mark on a chart or, you know, some some 
classroom kind of reward like that. And then, you know, that's easy to keep the words going as well. That's great. Oh, so many good ideas there, Moddy. Like that that kind of lucky dip box I think is great because <laughs> students love love that kind of sense of game yeah. show randomness yeah. where one kid <laughs> can stick their arm in and pull some words out and then they've got to use them. That's just great. And then the kind of the word wizard and in the media, did you want to expand on that? Because I think that is kind of harking back to what we were talking about at the start about the kind of dispositions and attitudes students have towards learning words and promoting that curiosity. I think that's a really crucial one and word wizarding in the media do really have the potential to kind of boost and engage that kind of curiosity. Did you want to talk a bit more about them? Sure. Yeah. We first did word wizard when we did a program for fourth graders, so younger kids. And it was, you know, just as we were trying to create this program and thinking of, you know, the, the research we were reading to that point kept stressing how often you have to encounter a word. So we were trying to think of other ways that would up the number of encounters and also make it fun. So we had a chart and we had come up with all these categories of, you know, you could be a word watcher or a word winner or a word wizard, and depending on how many points you accumulated. And what you did was take a little slip of paper and you could write down if you had seen or heard or used a word outside of school. So kids would come in and tell, you know, in this book, you know, this person was described as sinister or whatever. And then the teacher would give would give a point for that. They would get one if they saw it, you know, one if they heard it, two if they saw it written in some place, and three points if they used it. And we thought we thought this might work. What happened is the teacher who we first did this with was just having a fit because every single kid was coming in with a word every day. And she just didn't have time to deal with it. She said, how am I going to deal with this? And we're like, oh, gee, that's too bad. We're like, yay! Because <laughs> that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. Yeah. Mm. So <laughs> is there a way you scaled it or changed I mean, that's fantastic. There was that response. Was there a way you scaled it or changed it to, to have the same effect without overwhelming the teacher? Well, what we had, because originally we had designed it so the teacher would sort of take, you know, each time a kid came in with one, she would have them explain it before she would give them the mark. And we said, well, have other kids do it. You know, give give the kid who's the class monitor or whatever, give them that job to have a kid tell you what it was that they they saw or heard. So that that helped a little, but yeah. But the, the thing about, I mean, there's so many good things about that activity as we came to understand it even better. One, it gives more encounters. Two, it's this the idea that I, I think often when kids learn vocabulary in school, especially when it's definition-based, they just think of it as a school activity. They don't really put it together that this is a word in their language that they're going to encounter and be able to use. And so when they start seeing the word outside of school, it's, it really is quite eye-opening. And then it also gives them this little Kids like to be, you know, kind of, kind of tricky. Ooh, I bet I can stick that word in a, in a, in a place and use it, which really is just beneficial for their learning. Uh, so it had all those kinds of characteristics that, uh, and, and kids just really took off with it. Fantastic. It sounds like a great approach to both, you know, engaging them, like you said, helping them to see that words are things to use in life and building that curiosity. The next thing I'm keen to talk about is um, the idea of kind of learning from context. And different people have, I guess, different views on this. And I was actually reading some stuff about grammar acquisition the other day. And apparently that's like one of the most 
split areas of, of um, second language acquisition anyway. Some people think that you need a really pure approach and it can only be learnt implicitly and some people think it should only be taught explicitly, etc. And I'd imagine it's kind of similar with vocabulary. A lot of people would believe that just doing heaps and heaps of reading is the best way to build vocab and others think that explicit instruction is really necessary. But lots of this question to you, what is the role of learning words just from from students' extended reading? What, what role does that play in, in building students' vocabulary? Well, it actually plays a very big role. I mean, that is the way we learn most of the words we know. But it's the, but several things. It's the case first that going back to these people who don't read as much, they're never going to build their vocabulary as much as somebody who reads a lot more. Even though they're learning words from reading, they're not learning as many and they may not be learning, you know, enough of the words that are going to be in more sophisticated text to give them openings to to that. The other thing is context, even though it's such an important way to learn words, it's very inefficient because authors don't write in order to teach you words. They write to use words to paint a picture, get a message across. So there are not, uh, I think the thing that that drives me the most crazy about when people talk about context clues, as if there was a good clue about any word within a context. There may not be, because again, authors don't write to teach you words. So they're not going to explain every word. They're not going to have a synonym for every word they use. So sometimes you can get some good information from context. Sometimes you can't. So the, the learning from context is very inefficient because you may meet a word, get a little bit of information. You know it describes a person. You may meet the, the second time and not expand. Your, you just It describes another person. And then you may meet it again and you think you get something that's completely different. It's, um, it's about being ill, like, oh. And, and so then you're trying to put these things together and then it may be a while before you see that word again. So when you, you, may, you have it again, the connections may not be as accessible. And so as you're adding these connections and trying to develop a representation of the word, it takes longer and it has ups and downs because you may either be getting limited information or even even misdirective information from context. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And and one of the things I really like, you talked about different contexts, context in four ways. Context is misdirective, non-directive, general or directive. Did you just want to quickly kind of go through them just so listeners have that vocabulary to really understand the points you're making there? Sure. So um, when we, and you know, we did a little study on this and, and that's how we came to those categories. We found that sometimes you really could get a good synonym of what the word, a word meant from a context. So we called those directive. Sometimes it was a general, like, you know, you knew it described a person or you, you knew it was a positive thing to call someone an expert, let's say. But sometimes it was just non-directive. You, you met the word, you really got no information from the context about it. It didn't help you at all. And there were a few contexts that were downright misdirective. And, you know, one example quickly I can use it was a description of, um, you know, this person who went mountain climbing. It was the first time he'd gone climbing and, and his legs just felt so heavy at the end of the day. The response, the, the experience had been exhilarating. 
And when we blacked that word out and said, okay, what do you think goes there? A lot of people said exhausting, which fits that context perfectly. But if you know what exhilarating means, then that context means something very different than to say the experience was exhausting. So that was that kind of thing is is misdirective. It's not it's not helping you learn that word. Hmm. Yeah, and so recognizing that there are these four kind of ways that context can lead students down paths of various understandings is helpful for teachers to know because often trying to learn it from the context can can be non-directive or even misdirective. Yeah, and I think I want to add add to that. I have seen again and again adults because they know the meaning of the word already. They will point to something in the context and say, oh, but that tells you what the word means, or that helps you see what the word means. But if you're a student who does not already know the meaning of the word, you're not necessarily going to go to that helpful part of the context. So you're going you're to pull out something else, or you're going to interpret it uh, be, be based on some other factor, like the way the word sounds, or you think you've run into it before and you think it means this, or you know, you're going to connect it to, to some other part of the text. Mm, that that's great. So one of the things I get most excited about is when researchers and educators talk about the difference in the behaviors of students who are achieving achieving better and achieving not so well in various contexts, right? So the difference between more and less successful learners. And one of the places in which you did this was when you talked about learning from context and you talked about in your book three specific things that less successful learners from context do that you didn't notice were present when more successful learners from context were reading. And so maybe we could go through these step by step. So the first one that students, many students did when they were students who weren't as successful yet about learning from context was they basically didn't use the context. You, you phrase it limited use of context when they were trying to understand what a word meant. Do you, do you have an example of what this might look like? Yes. So let's see. So um, I actually did my dissertation on this topic. So I should, that was a long time ago. So I should still, I should know some of the examples. So one sentence I had was about noticing a house at the end of the block. You know, people always notice that house. So what do you think notice meant? And the kids would instead talk about something that went with house. Well, houses, there were probably a lot of houses on that block. Or, you know, they, they just didn't entertain notice at all. They talked about something they knew from the context. Uh, so that was non-use of context. Yeah. It's funny. They're just kind of playing a guessing game. It's just, and, I, and I've seen this happen. They, it's kind of as if, if the student is just drawing on often their background knowledge of houses because they're like, yes. this is about houses. The teacher's asked me a question, therefore I should talk about houses. But they're not linking the specific context of the sentence to the, the potential meaning of the word. That's great. The second thing was, and this one was a really interesting one, students can sometimes attribute meaning of the entire context to the target word. What's an example of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I found in my study. And there was a famous study like back in the 50s, where kids would do this again and again, they'd come up with a whole. So an example of that was something that I talked about earlier about this context about potential house buyers. And kids would think that potential had something to do with house buying. And so the next time they met, they met the word potential, they were looking for the house buyers, you know. So it's it's taking taking the context as the, the meaning of the word. And that's very, very common. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's like 
you you say you read the sentence you know there were many p- potential house buyers at the house inspection and you say to students what what might potential mean and they're like it means lots of people are coming to inspect the houses or whatever it's just it's it seems bizarre but but it's <laughs> lots of students seem to do it but when you think about it it makes sense because you know kids are given this context and it's almost like there's a hole in it you know potential is kind of a hole for them they don't know what that means so they're trying to make sense of the information they do understand so you know that's as humans we <laughs> we try to do that with instead of focusing on what the unknown which is really what we need to to think about mm yeah that's great. Um, and, and the third one is sometimes, and this is a really creative one, students can develop some scenario in which the word might fit. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, let me see if I can think of one. Um, I had a context, this was again from my, defini- my uh, dissertation study about, I can't remember what the word meant, but, but at one point I had something about a context about somebody going to the the eye doctor for new glasses and so they they began to say something well he probably told her she she really needed to be careful of her glasses because they probably got broken i'm like what (laughs) so what i what i imagine is that this is a child who wears glasses and frequently breaks them and ends up back at the eye doctor and the eye doctor's like you know you got to take care of your glasses so again it's that bringing the background knowledge about something from that context, but just making it up because that had nothing to do with the sentence that I read, nothing to do with the the new word that I was uh, introducing them to. Mm, yeah, that's uh, really interesting and often confusing and frustrating for teachers. I think when they where they can hear it, it can be unfortunately. Um, oh, just, so one more thing is that yeah, confusing and frustrating for teachers often because, not only because kids are making an error, but because teachers don't know what they're, the kids are doing. It's like, they, sometimes they, don't, they just don't even know where this is all coming from. So it's, it's hard to like get in there and help the kid out. Yeah, and potentially also creates negative cycles as well because the, if this is done in a kind of public scenario, where the teacher asks a student or something, they could say something which is, seems a bit weird and the teacher's reaction could be like, where on earth did that come from? Um, <laughs> yeah. And the student goes, oh, okay, I, I've strewed up there and yeah. then they, they're less likely to want to engage next yeah. time. It's, it's yeah. a, it's, it can be a tricky situation. But I guess from this, one of the questions is, well, how do we actually help students go from scenarios in which they are, you know, utilizing limited use of context, attributing the meaning of the entire context of the target word or developing some unrelated scenario in which the word might fit um, how do we go from that kind of situation to ones in which students are, are not doing these things and are really examining the context and, and trying out different potential words and meanings that, that could be attributed to to the target word? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think part of it is if teachers can start to recognize these patterns, recognize where kids might be getting this misinformation from them, and then just kind of use it as part of the conversation, like to say, Oh, you know, I think you're looking at that sentence and you're, you're thinking about house because that sentence is about a house. But let's look at notice and how notice is used in the sentence. And then it's not saying to the kid, well, what was that about? But you're really helping them see, you know, you're telling them, oh, you're, you're processing it this way. Let's look at it this way. And so it, it is just kind of a redirection. And 
I think the, the more that the teacher can say to the kids, yeah, we often do that when we, we see a sentence with a, a new word in it. We don't know what it means. So we say, oh, maybe, you know, we look around the sentence and we say, well, maybe it has something to do with a house or maybe it has something to do with the doctor who's giving her glasses because that is really how our processing operates. And the more the teacher can share that with kids, I think the less they'll have that reaction that you talked about, about, oh, I'm never going to say anything in class again. Um, that was really stupid. But they'll see that, oh, yeah, this is all a process of learning words. We we try to figure these out. So sometimes we kind of, you know, try to use things that really end up not being part of what, of what the word means. Mm. And is there any specific kind of direction that we should give to students about instead of that? Because just then you kind of alluded to it. You were like, can we have a think about what the word notice might mean in a sentence? Is there anything you can add to that to kind of be a little bit more directive about what students should be doing or looking at? Well, it's so hard because it depends so much on the context because you might have a context where the house is really important and the the word is something that is specific to a house. Or um, So I guess maybe I could say, you know, when we meet a context, there's a new word. We have to think about the whole context and don't just think that there's going to be a word in there that that, that other word is going to mean. And, but it has to be lots of modeling, like looking at a, looking at a sentence, looking at, let's go back to this, uh, the servants and the, um, so if you say they'd never comment, don't write, oh, look, servants are there, but does this comment have to do with servant? Well, no, let's read the rest of the sentence and see if we can figure out what they would never do. And it, it just has to be lots and lots of demonstration and modeling, because as I say, every context is is different. Mm. Yep, that's good. And I guess also, well, knowing these three things that students often do that don't make sense, but lots of kids tend to do it anyway. Well, they don't help, but they, I guess, make sense in a way. To, to me, that was really helpful because um, it meant that what I'd seen in the classroom myself when I'd taken a few literacy classes, when I'd thought, what is this student doing? And like, thought it's like oh it's this kid doing this weird thing it's like actually it's not just this kid doing this weird thing it's actually a pattern that's existed you know even in the research in the 1950s which you mentioned earlier like it doesn't mean these kids are uh, uh, you know really really struggling particularly or whatever it's just what a lot of kids do so that's helpful at the outset but just also understanding that kind of these things take time but also understanding what you were talking about before in terms of the different roles of context as being sometimes directive often general, sometimes non-directive, not giving any hints, and often also misdirective, just having those kind of categories in our minds so that even when we explain it to students, sometimes you can work out what the word means from where it is and how it's used, but sometimes you can't and you just have to look it up. So that's that's good too. One of the other interesting things I remember from the book, I didn't actually have this in my notes for today's interview, but I've, I've recalled that it, it was an interesting thing, the idea of actually encouraging students to look words up. What is is this something we should be doing? And if so, how should we be encouraging students to look words up and, and get into a habit of looking words up when they don't understand things? Yeah. And again, it's tricky because, you know, they, they may look things up and, and the definition doesn't help them. So what I've said is that, you know, encourage kids if they, if they see a word that they don't understand to, to get the dictionary out, look, look at what it is. Or, you know, maybe, maybe they don't want to stop in the middle of the reading, write it down and then go back to that sentence and, and use the dictionary. But as a teacher, if I see a kid take a dictionary down, I'm going to be over there because I want to help them with that definition because it may not be very useful to them. 
And that's, a, that's another part of it. You have, you have to help kids understand that the dictionary might help you on its own. It might not. But together with the context, you can kind of figure it out. And so it's, it's again, that developing that kind of attitude, like we're going to use a dictionary, but it's not like, boom, that's going to give us the answer. You know, it's, it's just another tool to use. Yep. Makes sense. So like making, whenever a student looks something up or attempts to, trying to make that a positive experience for them so that they're going to keep on doing that. And maybe even acknowledging that in front of the class. You know, I really like how, how Jacinta looked up that word when she was confused. That was great. Do you want to share with us Jacinta what you found out or something like that? Absolutely. Could be cool. Another question, we've been speaking today mostly from the co- context of specific targeted literacy instruction. What about for me as a math teacher, for someone as a science teacher, art teacher, music teacher, whatever it might be, the role of non-literacy, non-English teachers in teaching vocabulary, especially kind of tier two words, do you see a role there? Have, have you done any research or know any research about that? We have not done any research about that, but a couple of things that I would say is that often I think subject teachers don't realize the role of tier two words in the text, in the science or social studies or math texts that they're reading with kids. And often they think, you know, the concept words, which is true, the concept words are very important and teach kids those. But what I would say to teachers is look at your text that you're reading. They're going to be words that support and describe domain concepts, things like, you know, analyze, evaluate, adequate, promote. Those words can be causing kids problems. Sometimes when they're having problems reading a subject matter text, it's not the 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 big uh, subject matter concepts they're not understanding, but they're not understand. They're not being able to put together what that big concept is because of these other words being used in the text. So be alert to that and explain them to them. Yeah, that's great. And and just for listeners, those kind of content words you were talking about, you've you've labelled them tier three words that are because we we hadn't mentioned that earlier in today's interview. Another thing I noticed when when I was reading your your book was all of the examples were taken from narrative texts and I didn't see any from expository texts. I was wondering if that's because you feel that it's better to teach them through a narrative text or, or if there's another reason or if it was just a coincidence or, yeah, curious to hear your thoughts. I think that's because we're very biased toward fiction. <laughs> um, it, you know, we've just really enjoyed using fiction with kids. Um, you know, we're the, the three authors of that book are we're big fiction readers ourselves. But no, I wouldn't say only only use narratives. So there's that. But the other reason is too when you start using expository text, sometimes it can get a little harder to separate the tier three words from the tier two words and we wanted to you know to to be more clear we were offering examples that had tier two words in and and didn't really have tier three but no definitely expository text and especially the kind of expository texts that aren't introducing new concepts things like maybe biographies or you know kind of um fe- the types of, of articles that we we think of as features in a in a newspaper so yeah those absolutely those types of things should should be used Mm, okay, that that makes that makes sense. Perhaps the final kind of kind of content related question for today, Lottie. You mentioned um, you mentioned earlier rave the rave program, and what we've been talking about today is mainly based upon the research in in kind of 
lower and particularly upper primary. But my understanding is you developed the RAVE program. I think earlier you talked about that being for years, kind of six and seven, 12, 13 year olds, or maybe even for use, you know, with older students if they're, if that's where their vocabulary is at. Did you want to tell us where, where that RAVE research went? Is, is there a program people can kind of, um, get out of that if they want to use any of those resources or anything like that? Yeah. So uh, we developed it for research and we had, you know, two years worth of it. So there were some kids who went to the program in both sixth and seventh grades and a couple of things drove it. One was this idea of context integration. We really wanted to help kids with that. So we would introduce the, the words in a small context, maybe 50 to 70 words, and then introduce a definition and then say to them, so, you know, given that definition, how does that word fit the, you know, now that you know the definition, how does that word fit the context? And we'd want them to describe, describe what the, you know, kind of the, the thing I said to you about Rhonda and the hermit. Well, he, he wasn't going to go to the wedding. We wanted them to, to really describe the, the context in terms of the word. And then we'd introduce a set, second context that used the word in a slightly different way, you know, not like the tended, tended to distinct definitions, but just, just a different nuance to it. And then talk about, so what, what does it mean in that context? And then, so that was the key. Oh, so we, we wanted to help kids develop what we thought of as a core concept of a word. So, for example, uh, the word approach, you know, that can be, you know, a noun, an approach to something or a verb to approach something. But there is that core concept across those two of, of kind of getting closer to something in order to understand it. So we wanted to, we deliberately wanted words that had those kinds of nuances and senses because tier two words are like that. They tend to be like that, or they tend to be, to have both physical and abstract senses, like the word suspend. You know, you can literally suspend something in the air or you can suspend an activity. And and we wanted kids to get that idea about that's, about the meaning of the meanings of words can do that. You know, they, they can kind of stretch in that way. We also introduced them to Latin roots because we thought that that might be a way in to help them with academic words, help them be able, so give them another tool to be able to work out words that were unfamiliar that they met. So we would teach, so say we taught the word um, consequence. So that has the Latin root um, S-E-Q which means follow, I think. So then we would introduce later the word sequel and sequence and show them how it related and talk about, you know, how Latin influenced English. We had a couple of lessons on that. And then at the end of the program, we gave kids an assessment that we found words with the roots that we had taught, but the the words that we had never mentioned and put it in a sentence and then asked them, to explain what the sentence was about. Like one of the sentences was like, uh, we had diminished, so we had min, meaning small. And the sentence was something like, you know, Sue and Alex often talked about the minutia of daily life. So we said, what did they talk about? And see if they could relate it to small. They, and sometimes they'd say things like, well, they just had small conversations. Um, but sometimes they could say, well, they just talked about kind of kind of little stuff. And that's what we wanted them to do. We found that the kids in rave were able to to do that. They were able to um, figure out, and not not even so much the meaning of a 
word precisely, but to make meaning of a context that had a word with a familiar root in it. So that was another important focus of the program. That's awesome. And that's amazing. Like I'm in the position now where I'm just starting to do my PhD and carry out a few kind of experiments in schools and boy, is it hard. And (laughs) the fact, the fact that you, um, carried out a two year study with a, a whole program and all these different moving parts, that's just, and managed to get, you know, pretty significant results out of it. And, and like you said, tr- you know, significant transfer as well with that example of the the min is absolutely phenomenal. Is is there a way, I mean, clearly you designed two years worth of instructional resources there. Is there a way for teachers to get their hands on that program or, or purchase it or anything like that? Uh, I've been sharing it with teachers for free. So I've gotten a lot of teachers ask me about how can I get a hold of Rave? And I say, well, you know, give me an email, associate, have a Dropbox account, give it, give me an email associated with your account and I'll put the program in it. Usually I'll send them a couple examples first and say, this is what it looks like. And this is what I've got, you know, 90, uh, what do we have? 99 words one year, 96 words. And this is how it goes. If, if you think this is something you can use, here it is. And then I just ask them not to spread it beyond their school. And if they ever use it like in a presentation to talk about the instruction in their school to, to credit us. Because, the, you know, it's fine whatever teachers want to do with it. You know, if I send it out to somebody and they only want to use the, the way the words are introduced in it, that's fine. But what I don't want to see happening is to see it cannibalized and end up on some website, you know, teachers pay teachers kind of website that here's some vocabulary instruction I created. So I'm happy to give it out, but I like to, you know, say to people, you know, that kind of keep it tight. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That's um, that's super generous that that's that you're just willing to give that stuff away, Modi. Um, and and for listeners, we'll we'll maybe have a chat and a think about if there's a way so you don't, Modi, get. 10,000 emails from teachers um, because that will probably become a little bit overwhelming. So, so, um, yeah, Uh, stay tuned, listeners, and we'll see if there's a a way or a couple of ways that we can make some of these incredible resources, maybe Rave and maybe some of the other early resources available to to teachers. Uh, Interesting, interesting area to watch. We'll see what we can do. All right, well, we might might move into some closing questions now. Modi, the first one is, where should teachers go for more info about vocabulary instruction? Well, let me see. One of the places, so in you know the reading journals, there there's good information, especially the reading teacher. There was an article in the reading teacher in uh, can't re- sometime in 2020. Authors Manyuk M A N Y U K and Manyuk that really went through good examples and kind of sample scenarios and and formats for instruction. So things like that are really, really valuable. I have a a colleague, Judith Scott, who's uh, at the University of California in Santa Cruz, who's written some books on word consciousness. And it comes from some research she did where not so much teaching specific words, but helping kids develop consciousness, consciousness of how words, they especially used good text, good children's literature, how authors use words, and then pulling some of those words out to learn and play with more and for kids to use in their own writing. So that that's a really good one. There's also the text project, and I think textproject.org, I think maybe it is, 
Freddie Hebert is a researcher who has just a ton of information and sample, I think, sample word lists and texts and so forth on reading and particularly vocabulary focus. So that's that's some place to look. I would tell people to get on Twitter. I mean, there's kind of a literary Twitter, literacy Twitter out there. I mean, you're you're on it. And people often share articles that they've read recently um, or blogs that people post about reading comprehension, about vocabulary. And this group is is pretty active and um, I think could be very helpful to teachers. And there's some, the Reading Forum, which has a, a Twitter account, which is, you know, a, um, a colleague at Purdue, uh, Melanie Kuhn, had some funding to pull a whole bunch of people together. And there was like a day-long Zoom conference. And then they've set up these um, you know, sites where they post articles that are older articles that people have shared. The author said, you can put this up and share it. Or asking researchers to write brief papers, some kind of summarizing the field. And there, there's some, at least one in vocabulary there. So I would say, you know, look around, look around on Twitter, look around on Facebook, because there are groups that share information that that can be very useful. That's fantastic. So yeah, and I'll include links to all those things you've just mentioned in the show notes. Um, Three favorite books on education, Modi, and you know you mentioned before that you you and the other authors are all lovers of fiction as well. So feel free to give us some some fiction recommendations in addition to. Oh gosh, you know that I could do because I was going to say to you, let me change the question and give you best books for kids that have great words in them because I books on education I don't. I, I just don't know. I don't know what I'd say other than, you know, my own, which I, I really like. So some really great books. Phantom Tollbooth is a, is a classic. Um, it has the, the way the characters play with words are amazing. There's a great novel, Tuck Everlasting, that has wonderful vocabulary. Anything by Raoul Dahl, Gary Paulson, Kate DiCamillo, they all do wonderful things with language. For younger kids, a couple of authors, James Marshall and Tim Egan, have stories that are hilarious, and they're just stuffed with great words. So those are all places to to go for you know teachers or parents. I mean, a lot of these, like the James Marshall and Tim Egan books, one of them is Burnt Toast on Davenport Street. It's just you know, it's just such a crazy, and all his characters are are like animals, but that you know, walk on two feet and wear clothes and they're just hilarious. And they're, so it's great read alouds to share. Kids love them, but it, it just has tons and tons of words. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And, um, yep. Again, I'll include all that in the show notes. And I think that's a, I love how you changed that question, Moddy, because I think that'll be really <laughs> relevant to a lot of teachers and, and even parents who are listening to this and want to build students' vocabularies. Any questions you're currently trying to answer or whose answer you're puzzling over at the moment? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. A big one is one that you asked me, which are, you know, kind of what are teachers sticking points in terms of vocabulary instruction? You know, why isn't there more good vocabulary instruction done in in classrooms? You know, people talk about uh, not enough time in the day. There's not much good material out there. Teachers think of, of words as just their definitions. And yeah, that's true. But 
you know, there, there is a lot of other information out there. So I don't know what, you know, what is it that's holding teachers back? I would really like to understand that. And why don't, you know, even if you don't want to do, if, if it's just too overwhelming to try to create, you know, a five-day sequence and all these different activities, just introducing a bunch of words and, and playing with them, using them every day. You know, you can just Google sentences with the word, you know, adequate and come up with examples that you can share with kids. Uh, it can be very, very informal like that. And, you know, maybe part of the problem is that teachers don't realize that even that would be very valuable. And they think they've got to do something very structured. I don't know. That that I would really like to, to know. Mm. Yep, that's great. In addition to that, what are you currently excited about? Okay, so one of the things I'm most excited about I have an 18-month-old grandson who's just starting to, you know, use words and, and use noises, animal noises, and I just can't wait to the next stages when he really starts using words and to, to play with language and, and have fun with him. Oh, my gosh. I just love that so much. <laughs> and, and, yeah, it would be hard to find a better, a better suited grandma when it comes <laughs> to uh, help making sure your kid knows how to read and has a, a love for language and the curiosity of it. So that's, he's a, he's a very, lucky grandson buddy <laughs> any last calls to action things you'd like listeners to go away today and do Ah, uh, yeah i think a couple of things so the first one is this you know enjoy language and teach kids to to enjoy it i mean please we can get that done and the other thing is don't be afraid to share both your knowledge of words and your lack of knowledge of words I mean, English is a language with, I, I think I mentioned it before, possibly 145,000 words. None of us know all those words. So it's great to share with kids, oh, there's a word I never heard of before. Oh, dear. You know, I met this word in my reading and I thought it meant this, but you know what? It doesn't. It means this other thing. And if kids see that, that, you know, you as a smart adult don't know all the words in the language and are still learning them, that that is huge. That's you know, along those lines of, you know, uh, helping kids to not shut down because they don't think they know what they, you know, what they should. Share lack of knowledge. And related to that, a thing that I think I may have said in the interview about questioning the author about text, but the same thing applies to words and language, is feel free to open more doors than you close. Don't feel like everything has to be wrapped up. That's what that word means. Now you know that word. It's it's an ever expand language is an ever expanding universe, and you know, feel free to toss a word in there that you think might be too hard for kids. They'll learn a little about it. You know, if they don't learn everything, fine. If they're a little confused about it, fine. That'll get that'll get straightened out up the line. Fantastic. Um, a, a great final message about. I guess modeling in many ways a growth mindset, but also that, yeah, just that inquiring, inquiring view and ever learning approach to, to literacy. Margaret McCown, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming on for a, a second episode of the ERRR podcast together. The, the first episode was just so popular. People absolutely loved hearing about questioning the author. And, I'm, and I know that people are going to love this episode as well. I mean, vocabulary instruction is something that's just so crucial. And as you said, earlier when I asked you, you know, what's the point of vocab? It's it's the basis of all instruction, you know. It, it's the basis of all engagement. It's the most basis of all communication. It's 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 what it's how we're having this podcast discussion today. Um so it's 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 crucial and and there's so many teachers around the world. I know I, I have been one of them in the past when I was doing some literacy instruction that 
struggle with this, have questions, are seeing patterns, don't know how to deal with them. And you've, you've got a whole career of expertise and a whole corpus of research that really addresses how to do this. Um, some of which, which, which we've touched on today and hopefully enough, enough of which we've touched on today to kind of whet people's appetites, but also give some practical things to do in the classroom starting from tomorrow and also some mindsets as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, hopefully we can get some of the, those resources you've mentioned um, a bit more widely available for people. And yeah, thanks for being a, a continuing inspiration in this space. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Eat Triple podcast with Margaret McCown. If you're keen for a summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast and 50 or 100% off the forthcoming ERRR book, Tools for Teachers, plus the option for your name in the thank you section of Tools for Teachers, please remember to jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with friends and colleagues. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.